Amen. Well, guys, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We're going to be together in the Gospel of Mark today. Mark chapter 8. Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And I'm going to ask if you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we do ask that you would bless not only the reading, but also now especially the preaching of your word. And may it be a source of life to our souls. As we open up your word and you speak your living truth into our minds and hearts today, you be our teacher. We will learn from you. We will believe your word and we will obey your word. Bless us now as you speak to us from your scriptures. For your name's sake and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Everything in the kingdom of God is upside down. The kingdom does not make sense to the world. It inverts, flips our normal expectations about life and the way the world works. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is born in poverty, not a palace. Jesus, in the form of God, came to serve, not to be served. Jesus, the King of Kings, enters Jerusalem in humility, not pageantry. Jesus, the power and wisdom of God, saves by the weakness of the cross and the foolishness of preaching. In the kingdom, the last shall be first, and the first last. In the kingdom, the most humble is the most exalted. In the kingdom, the greatest is the servant of the least. Everything is upside down, inside out, and backwards in the kingdom when you compare it to the way of the world. In our passage this morning, we come to what is perhaps the most striking reversal of our expectations in the kingdom. And here in this passage at the end of chapter 8 in Mark's gospel, Jesus teaches his disciples that the only way to save your life is to lose it. 
The only way to help yourself is to deny yourself. The path to life is the path to the cross. The only way to have your life is to give your life to Jesus. Jesus teaches us that contrary to what the world believes, in the kingdom of God, dead is alive. And there are at least three senses in which it is true that dead is alive. And I want us to consider these three this morning. So we'll start with the first. The first sense in which it's true that dead is alive is this. Dead to self is alive to Christ. Dead to self is alive to Christ. Look how Jesus begins this paragraph, verses 34 and 35. He says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Do you see how backwards this is to what we would normally think? How can dead be alive? <laughs> well, let's look at what he says. Notice this, a few things, a few details about what Jesus says here. In verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, if anyone that means this is a universal condition. This is a universal requirement. If anybody, it's for everyone. This is a condition that applies to each one of us. If anyone would do what? If anyone would come after me or be my follower. If anybody wants to be a follower of Jesus, if anybody wants to be a Christian, this is the requirement. There may be more requirements, but there's at least this one, and it applies across the board. And what is it? Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Sacrifice yourself on the altar. Denying yourself. Sacrifice yourself upon the altar. And what is that altar? Take up his cross. Deny himself and take up his cross. Die to self and take up your altar and live as a living sacrifice for him. Isn't this what Paul tells us to do in Romans 12:1? He says, I tell you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service. This is your act of worship. We don't need temple sacrifices with animals in the temple. No, we now offer ourselves as the sacrifice God wants. He wants all of you. If anyone wants to be my follower, Jesus says, let him take up his cross, deny yourself, pick up your altar, and come sacrifice yourself to me. Belong totally to me. And that's the, that's the last line of verse 34. Take up his cross and do what? Follow me. Follow me. And where is Jesus going, Christian? Where is Jesus headed today? 
He's heading to Golgotha. He's heading to Calvary. You see, Jesus here is telling his disciples before he ever goes to the cross, he's saying, if you guys really want to follow me, you need to know where I'm headed. Because if you're going to follow me, you're going to reach the same destination as me. You're coming with me. And by the way, on the way there, you need to grab a cross. You're going to need that when we get to where we're going. Pick up your altar and come be crucified with me. That's the Christian invitation. That's Jesus' invitation. Come get crucified with me. Come lose your life on a cross with me. And there you'll find it. There you'll save your life. That's the kingdom's logic. And it does not strike us as making very much sense when you first hear it. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. How can we go to the place of torture and death and find life there? Well, isn't this the inner mystery of the gospel itself. Verse 35 says, because, that word for tells you because. What I just said in verse 34 is true because of what I'm about to say in verse 35. For, because, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Jesus goes on here in this verse to say that this death with him on a cross is the way to life. And if you try to get out of it, if you try to bypass the cross to save your life, you actually end up losing it. The only way to get your life is to go with Jesus to that cross. You see, this is the pattern of Jesus' earthly life, isn't it? Jesus goes through death and resurrection. This is his path that God calls him to. Jesus goes through death and resurrection. And he calls his followers to follow him on this same path. And when we die to self, we become alive to Christ. When we die to self the way he did, we enter into his life the way he did. We participate With Jesus in that death and resurrection pattern that he lived. That's the invitation. Come join me in this path. Come follow me with your cross. When we die to self, we become alive to Christ. We participate in his death and resurrection. We experience the living, life-giving power in our own lives as we live for him. When we sacrifice self on the altar of the cross to Him, being fully surrendered to Him, now His life is able to work through us and to raise the dead in you and to make you a new and living creature who lives not for self, that just died, but lives for Him. You will know His life-giving power in your life when you sacrifice self and you follow Him. Now, Paul captures this perfectly in Galatians 2.20. Paul captures this very perfectly in Galatians 2.20. Listen to how he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. You see, Paul accepted the call. He took up his cross, 
And he says, I've done it. I have taken up the cross. I've followed him to Golgotha. I have been crucified with Christ. One of the, the thief on the cross was me. Christ was crucified with two other people. And now he says, I have joined him on that hill on my cross as well. I have been crucified there with him. I have gone to die with him. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. Right? He's, he's died to self. It's not me living anymore, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life-giving love of Christ gives life to us as we are crucified with him. We deny ourselves. We die to self so that we can be alive to Christ and live with his life in us. That's the beginning of the Christian life. And that's where it starts. The second way in which dead is alive is this. First of all, dead to self is alive to Christ. But secondly, dead to sin is alive to God. Dead to sin is alive to God. As we have just seen, the path of Jesus' death and resurrection is the path on which he calls us to join him. It is the call to be crucified with Christ, to enter into his death that we might enter into his life. And this call and this reality is powerfully embodied and dramatized in the sacrament of baptism. In baptism, we are dead with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, alive with Christ. We enter into this path of death and resurrection life. And the sacrament of baptism is this beautiful picture, this beautiful picture of what it looks like we act out sacramentally this call that Jesus gives. Now, to see this connection, let us stick with Paul for just a moment before we go back to Mark 8. And let's look at Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. In Romans 6, 1 through 11... Paul spells this out. He draws the connection between Galatians 2.20, being crucified with Christ, and Romans 6 in baptism, of being dead with Christ. And he makes this point that dead to sin is alive to God. Let's see how he makes it. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, we read this. What shall we say then? He's just got through talking about justification by faith alone, without need of any works of obedience. And so the, here he's about to face an objection. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if we're justified by faith and works don't matter, then we can just go on sinning, right? That's the objection. And Paul says, by no means, God forbid, in Romans 6, 2. Absolutely not. We can't do that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There he makes the point. Dead to self is also dead to sin. Dead to the sin that our old self was living for. And now we're alive to new life in Christ. As he goes on to say in verse 5, For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Dead to self. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. You see Paul's connection here. When we die to self we die to what that old self was living for. And now we rise with the life of Christ and we rise with obedience to Christ. We want Christ's life to live in us and we want to live the kind of life that Christ calls us to in obedience to God. Sin and death no longer have dominion over Christ because He died. And therefore sin and death no longer have dominion over us. When we are united with Christ and enter into these baptismal realities. As Paul goes on to say in the last section of, the, of, this, of Romans 6 here, of this paragraph in verses 9 to 11. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When we die to self, we also die to sin. And when we come alive in Christ, we also begin to live for God. Now sin no longer has dominion over you so that you have to obey what it tells you to do. You're not in the flesh anymore. You're not under sin's mastery anymore. You've been liberated. You've been set free. You've died to sin. And now it has no more claim on you. You can now live free of it. You can now have mastery over it. You're not living for sin anymore. You're now living for God. And what does that look like? Paul goes on in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law but under grace. The only way to have life in Christ is to die to self. And the only way to, have, to live for God is to die to sin. This is 
patterned for us in the life of Jesus as he went through his death and resurrection. And it is depicted for us in baptism as that entry point into this death and resurrection reality where we can die with Christ, be crucified with him, and come alive with his life to live for God and have victory over that old sin that we used to love and crave. And this now leads us into the third and final point I want to make this morning. Dead is alive. Dead to self is alive to Christ. Dead to sin is alive to God. And now finally, dead to the world is alive to eternity. Dead to the world is alive to eternity. Let's come back to Mark chapter 8. Look at verses 36 and 37, where Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What's Jesus saying here to us? He's just called us to take up the cross, to be crucified with him, and to follow him in his path. That's how we save our lives. But now he answers an implied objection. Someone who says, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. And someone who clings to the things of this world. That's what they think saving your life means. Having this world. Having the things of this world. This is why Jesus addresses this concern. What would it profit you? What good would it do you? What gain would you have if you gained the whole world but you lost your soul? What if the one thing you have that is everlasting you gave up for all the other stuff that's just temporary? Why would you make that deal? Why would you weigh those two prices and take the one over the other? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What if you had the whole world and then judgment day comes and now you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I think I'd rather have my soul. And you try to offer everything the world has to give that you've held on to and accumulated, that you've tried to save. If you try to offer that life you've saved in exchange for eternal life, you can't afford it. That's what he says. What can a man give in return for his soul? What transaction are you hoping to make? What if you gained the whole world? What good would it do you in the end? Temporarily it might seem great. But in the end, it cannot earn and it cannot afford everlasting life. That's Jesus' point. Even if you had everything this world had to offer... You still couldn't earn or afford your soul's everlasting life. The only way to gain everything, Christian, is to lose everything. The only way to gain the world is to lose the world. That's the kingdom. You want to gain it? Lose it. You want to keep it? Give it up. 
That's the kingdom logic. You have to give up the world. You have to die to the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following, John says, Christian, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever, John says. Don't love the world. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's flimsy. It looks spectacular. It looks like the thing you want. It looks like you're gaining your life. But actually, you're forfeiting away your soul. Do not love the things of this world. James says it this way in James chapter 4, verse 4. Picking up on language that Jesus will use in the next verse in Mark where he calls this generation sinful and adulterous. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says. You adulterous people. He's talking to Christians. This is a letter to a church. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's a serious warning Jesus gives. You can't flirt with the world, love the world, cling to the world, chase the world, live like the world, think like the world, act like the world, pursue the world, and think that's real life. I'm gaining my life. And then think at the same time you can be friends with God and love God. These two paths are contradictions. One is the broad gate and the broad way that leads to destruction, and many there are who find it. But the other path is the narrow way and the small gate, and how few there are, Jesus says, who find it. Verse 38, in the last verse of the passage, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. At the judgment, those who are attached to this world will not inherit the world to come. But those who lose this world will inherit everything that the world to come has to offer. That's the bargain. That's the deal. That's the kingdom. Lose self, lose sin, lose the world and its stuff. Self, sin, and stuff. And you'll gain Christ, you'll gain God, you'll gain the kingdom, you'll gain well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master on the last day. That's the kingdom call. It starts by picking up a cross and it ends by entering into glory with a crown. That's the way Jesus had to go. And that's the way we have to go as well. To conclude, Jesus describes this later in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10 as he has an encounter with the rich young ruler. 
And there's this man who runs up to Jesus in Mark 10, 17, and he kneels before Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I gain my life, Jesus? Forever, not just temporarily. And Jesus tells him to obey God's commandments, and he says, well, uh, I've, I've already done all that. I've obeyed all of God's commandments. Anything else I need to do? <laughs> and Jesus pats him on the head and says, okay. All right, somebody, somebody doesn't understand sin. Okay, but he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke him in Mark. Instead, it says... Jesus, in verse 21, looking at him, loved him and said to him, there's one thing you lack. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Lose self, lose sin, lose this world. You'll have treasure in heaven and then just come follow me. And here's how he responded in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He just couldn't embrace Jesus' call. He had too much in this world that he loved and couldn't let go of. He was too attached to this world. And he would rather have this world than the world to come. Now, this made, this made Jesus turn to his disciples and say how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at, at his words. But Jesus said to them again, he repeats himself, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to squeeze himself and all his stuff through the door of the kingdom. Better success squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle than squeezing a rich man loaded with this world's stuff into the kingdom. And verse 26, and the disciples were just shocked, exceedingly astonished. They said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, exactly. That's right. Who can be? Answer, nobody. Verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. We've given up everything. We've denied self. We've died to sin. We've died to this world. We've given up everything and we're following you. What about us? And Jesus concludes with this, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, the exact language he used in chapter 8, for my sake and the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions... And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. What we get in the life to come is the world. 
A hundredfold what we give up here. The inheritance so far outstrips and outweighs what we sacrifice now. The only way to have life is to die. Dead is alive in the kingdom. And the first will be last. And the last will be first in the kingdom of God. Christians die to self and live for Jesus. Christians die to sin and live for God in obedience. Christians die to this world and live for the world to come. And when the dead rise at the second coming, dead truly will be alive. For those who die in Christ, live with Him. And at His coming, we rise. And we will live for Him and with Him forevermore. This is the way the kingdom calls us to go. Dead is alive. Up is down. Last is first. Best is least. Greatest is smallest. Come be crucified with Jesus today. And you'll find eternal life. Let's pray. Father, this, we admit, is a high and difficult call from Jesus. It's a call that in our natural selves we cannot accept because we do love self more than Christ. We do love sin more than righteousness, more than God. We do love this world and the stuff of the world and the things of the world and our lives in this world more than we love the gift of life that is to come, more than we love the kingdom, more than we love the world to come. In our natural state, that's all we are. That's who we are. And we confess, as Jesus said, with man it's impossible to get free of this for the kingdom to really make sense spiritually all the way down on the inside. It doesn't make sense to our flesh, to our natural state in sin. We love self too much. We love sin too much. We love this world too much. But what is impossible with us is possible with you. And we thank you that you have, by your Holy Spirit and by your grace and power, you have changed ourselves from the old self into the new self. That you have changed our relationship with sin and given us a new relationship with obedience and righteousness. We thank you that you have freed us from our love with this world so that we can love you and live for you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would continue to help us die in these ways and come alive more and more fully to all the glory and power of your kingdom. And may we become wise stewards of the things we have in this world. May we use them for your honor and glory. May we offer ourselves and all that we have for your service and for your kingdom and not cling to these things as obstacles in our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to answer the call, to take up the cross, to get up on our altar every day and to follow you where you lead. Help us to die that we might live with you forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.